Warning. The following podcast may contain explicit language. It will certainly contain heterodoxy, political pandemonium, and graphic depictions of alcohol use. Listeners may rest assured that at the time of recording this episode, all participants had nowhere to drive. The Cocktail Party Congress encourages you to drink and think responsibly. In vino veritas. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. My ancestors couldn't. I can. And my children will. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt? Party Congress, the only political discussion podcast, to our knowledge, with a three-drink minimum. I'm Dan. And I'm JT. Uh, it's so good to be back with you, JT. Episode one seems to have gone over very well. Yeah, it did. Um, there were some issues last time, though, with uh, apparently with my microphone. Uh, yeah, I was hearing I was hearing some some feedback from uh, friends of mine that like I was like the booming voice of authority, but your your audio quality was a little uh, a, a, a little bit of a detraction. So what was up with that? Yeah, well, I figured that out because drunk me is a total rube, and drunk me <laughs> forgot to set his audacity settings to have the uh, his mic to actually be the input oh. as opposed to his laptop. So drunk Ooh, me was a no. total idiot, and uh, Ooh, we, we've no. since fig- figured that out. Uh, lessons learned there. Uh, well, I'm glad that we've sorted that out. Yeah, we theoretically should be on the same quality level, but yeah. I mean, although gotta say, your laptop microphone isn't that bad. I mean, it was it was listenable. It was, it was listenable, but, but it still sounded terrible. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that we've worked out that bug hopefully hopefully that's the only thing that we 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 really have to work out at this point um uh, tonight i've got a dispatch from mahogany ridge right now from our doughboys on the liver front well the battle rages on what uh what have they to say all right so tonight's cocktail is going to be the classic french 75 and to make french 75 you're gonna need to get out your the old martini shaker fill it with ice to that, you're going to add an ounce of gin, half an ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice, a couple of dashes of simple syrup. You're going to shake that and then strain that into a champagne flute. And then you're going to top it with champagne or sparkling wine of your choosing. Garnish with a twist of lemon. And these mm. are fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm sipping mine right now, and it's over the moon. Like, I... Um, apparently there's a little bit of a backstory to the name of the drink. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, JT? It seems, it seems very apropos to the, uh, the gimmick that we've picked out for ourselves. So the, uh, one of the original developers of the French 75, whose name escapes me right now, I'm sure a quick Google search will, uh, it will tell you who it is. They said it used to hit like the effects of the drink was that it hit like a French 75 millimeter cannon. And this is back in World War One era, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with this guy. I absolutely love that. That that's such a great explanation, and uh, I really just thank you for choosing this cocktail. I'm really in. I, I'm I'm really enjoying the hell out no of it. No problem. I mean, we're probably gonna have plenty more shows after this, so uh, we'll get to broaden our horizons a lot. I hope so. I hope so. Well. Now that we've gotten the formalities of what we're drinking out of the way, let's get into the nitty-gritty of what we're thinking. Um, Well, we have just survived yet another federal government shutdown. It lasted for three days, and um, it really has us kind of wondering how we get to this point. How did we get to where, where two parties can fight over what really isn't an existential issue like this one is over immigration. The, the, the first one was over the health care bill in 2010, and this one was over immigration reform? Yes, it, it's yeah. immigration reform. I mean, it feels like uh, it, one side is holding hostage the uh, the border wall, and the other side is holding hostage the uh, uh, the DACA kids. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's quite demoralizing to see us kind of stuck in this back and forth, and it really... 
brings forward the question, I think. Uh, I mean, plenty of podcasts are going to be talking about the nitty-gritty and the uh, the, the, the the policy details. The blame game as well. Of the blame game, especially. Um, well, I was speaking with some friends over the weekend about the shutdown, and a very dear friend of mine, she made an interesting point that leads into the topic for this episode, and that point was... It's like the parties these days are fighting over who gets to rule the country rather than governing it. And so we sort of formulated the thesis statement for this episode. How are today's political parties governing or rather ruling the country? That's right. It's um, <laughs> This is a topic that you can almost write books about. Um, today we have a... Currently, we have a two-party system. Third parties are very, very ineffective uh, for one reason or another. And uh, I think it's our task to try to figure out why or, and also the hows of today's political parties. And I'm going to say for when I first registered to vote, I was 18 at the time, just turned 18. And I registered as a member of the Republican Party. I chose to leave the Republican Party after only a few short years in 2008 because I disagreed with the Wall Street bailout uh, that was passed under the George W. Bush administration. And I really felt that at that point, they no longer represented my beliefs, so I decided to leave, which begs the question, is it more... Can, is it possible that leaving a party could be even more dangerous than staying within a party. And I think that's something that we should actually talk about. In for, uh, in, man, this French 75 is pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Um, I understand what you're saying. I, I have a similar story. I started out, um, I was a pretty conservative kid, which is an odd thing to say. Um, and when I finally got into politics, like a real interest and wanted to pursue it as a, as a topic of my life, I registered as a Republican, and I was, you know, I was active as um, as a Republican in my community, and I led college Republican organizations over time. And as I learned more about myself and more about the world and more about the party, I ended up leaving it a little later than you. I left it in 2012, and I left it after it was during the. It was during the Republican convention, and they had just published the platform. I remember And that. I decided, okay. Yeah, and I decided that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be open-minded about this. I'm going to think about maybe they learned a lesson from the 2008 election, and maybe they've worked some of that into the platform. And I started reading it, and I think it was on page four that I stood up from my desk and drove myself over to the local board of elections and I changed my registration to no party because at that point it, it just felt like this party no longer represented my interests. And I, at that time, I could not, I could not consider myself a member of that party anymore. I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that the party, I didn't leave the party, but the party left me. But in a certain, to a certain extent, that's, that, that was pretty much true. Yeah. But, but we're living in a time where you really have to question the utility of leaving a political party now. Yeah. I, um, on the one hand, if you leave a political party, you it's like when all the doctors leave an insane asylum, the, the lunatics now have control over it. You've lost your primary vote. You've effectively lost your voice within the, your own political party that you just left. Um those are some of the cons that I feel like of of leaving a political party. Well, I think we could take a couple of steps back almost and just look at what is the point of a political party? I mean, in the best sense, they are a way for organizing money and action to accomplish a relatively common goal and to bring together, and especially in our system, which is... If you think about our country, it really is a four-party country with two parties. I agree with and that 100%. The both of the I feel like it's the yeah. establishment and the anti-establishment within both parties. It is. And 
So the four the four parties would be a center left, a center right, and then the further extremes of both of those spe- uh, both ends of those spectrums. So you've got you know far left, center left, center right, far right, and generally it's going to be a coalition between each of those sets of wings. And they're supposed to be two wings of the same bird, and they're supposed to be flapping in the same direction. But we have gotten to a point in the last 30 or 40 years, really. I mean, we we experience it acutely because we're so young. Right. We're, but it's... We're millennials. For the, like, yeah, we are We are technically millennials. What, what, welcome to reality. We, we are, <laughs> we're at the leading edge of, of that, but technically, technically we are part of those damn millennials. But at, over the last 30 or 40 years, we've seen the parties move further and further to the extremes, and the center is really left in the dark, and it's gotten especially dark Yeah, I can, I, in this time. I cannot remember the last time I ever heard of a liberal Republican or a conservative Democrat. They just don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean... And the options for, for those center parts... Really aren't that really aren't that appealing. Um, we have the two major political parties, the Democratic and Republican parties, and we do use those words very loosely. Uh, something I would like to get into is I've been calling myself, and you may agree with this, a small R Republican for potentially longer than I have identified with the Republican Party. Yes, I, I refer to myself as a small R Republican or. Sometimes I will use the phrase "classical liberal," um, much in the same yeah, strain that, that, as that is a fr- much in the same strain as the founding fathers. Yeah, I and I agree with that term too. It's it's one that I hope does not take on the same the same ideal uh, ideal. I'm trying to think of a way to say <laughs> no. I was going to say ideological, but I want to say like ideologic. I, I ideolo- uh, French seventy five is pretty good. The French seventy five is really doing its job. <laughs> Well, it, I'm hoping that it doesn't take on the same the, the same ideological twinge as we try to give to any any new term that comes around. Right. Um, for instance, libertarian means a certain thing to many people that doesn't necessarily define clearly what it means to be a libertarian. Um, but at the same time, it's a very niche ideology. As is the Greens, like, like the Green Party is a very niche ideology in comparison to the main political parties. Yes, the the Green um, and the Libertarian seem to be the two. I would say almost the left and the right, much equivalent to the Democrats and Republicans of the potential big third party. Yeah, and they're not quite centrist in the sense that we're talking about. The, 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 like they have very specific, very specific at least takes on on the sort of mixtures between the two the, the two right and left wings. Um, but those aren't really an option for a lot of people. I can, I, can, I can think of a lot of disillusioned Republicans who are not, including myself, who would not go as far as to call themselves a capital L Libertarian Party um, adherent. And I know, similarly, plenty of disillusioned Democrats who wouldn't exactly call themselves, um, you know, the... Uh, ecological equi- like the ecological mindset of the green party and you know a, a more not even extreme progressivism but just a different different emphases i suppose yeah, I can agree with that. but as far as the centrist side of things i really don't see i really don't see an option yeah. out there for the now i really don't um, um we're, we're, we're really trapped trapped between the two parties at this point we're trapped in that galdern two-party system Mr. Caves. We are. Um, so, is there a moral case for leaving a party that no longer re- represents you? What are your thoughts on that, JT? A moral case for leaving the uh, a single party is that it really lets the party know that you no longer support their platform. That it's no longer conducive to your own personal ideology. Effectively, it's just it's sending a message to the people in charge that they are no longer right for you. And in, if you get enough people saying this and enough people leaving, they're saying that you are no longer conducive to a, 
a constructive society, that you're effectively leading the American public astray. And we will not tolerate that and we will not stand for it. So that's one of the 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 pros of actually leaving a party is pretty much it's sending a message to the party leaders. Yes, but also I would add that a lot of people would have to make that choice for it to have any real effect. I mean, who who, who gives a damn if Dan Caves and JT Andrews leave the Republican Party? I mean, nobody really no one does. No, no nobody was really going to notice the that. Mo- the but money's still going to keep flowing in to the two-party system. And it is. And the incentives, I mean, the incentive structure is completely backwards. I mean, to, just to get back to the original uh, question of the show, how are today's political parties governing or rather ruling the country? I think that to answer that question, or at least to be concerned about that question, we should get into what is the difference between governing and ruling? Those are two, in my mind, those are two very different mindsets and two very different incentive structures. I agree with that, 100%. So so I guess I'll begin by saying that, um, okay, I'm going to get kind of nerdy on you right now. (laughs) I've been... I've been reading, I've been reading the American Republic by Orestes Brownson. He was a, he was a 19th century American intellectual, uh, political thinker who after the civil war, he wrote the American Republic to almost reinvigorate and reframe the discussion of what the American constitution was, is, and shall be. And A sort of niggling point that he makes in the beginning of the book is he draws a distinction between the way... Okay, so the words that he uses are there are barbaric governing structures and there are civilized governing structures. And while those words have a very charged meaning in our world, um, and especially like barbaric versus civilized, that is a very... That, that is a very cultural and sometimes racial twinge to them. But he was very precise in how he used those terms. And he was very precise about how he thought the that the Greeks and Romans used those terms as far as, like, what they really mean. Now, a barbaric political philosophy is one that roots the, legit, the legitimacy of governing, the legitimacy of rule, and the legitimacy of power into... A sort of a private authority. It's it's the kind of it's the kind of it's the kind of authority that comes from your birth, your blood. It's going to be like the clan leader, the tribal chief. It's going to be the king. It's going to be things like that. It's going to be hereditary power. While civilized systems like republics, like the Roman Republic, like like Greek democracy. Um, the way they use that term was to refer to systems that treat political power as a public concept. I mean, republic comes from the Latin res publica, which pretty much just means in Latin, the public thing. And that is that was one of the, revolution, the real revolutionary changes in the American Constitution, is that in a world where power was a private good it was the private property of royal families and of aristocrats and of all of these different hereditary systems it was the first country to really it was the first country in the modern era to root sovereignty and legitimacy in the public and i think that's the difference between governing and ruling is that ruling is a very private thing it's up to the private whim of the personality holding the power while governing, it hands that power over to the concept of the public is choosing this person to do it. And I think that the idea of ruling and private authority is one that is taking over more and more, and it is embodied in our president, shall we say his name? Well, I, I have my golf well, clicker here, ready. Here's the thing. If you say his name, you're going to have to take a drink. Yeah, we're instituting this rule. Just take a sip of whatever you've... We do encourage you to drink responsibly, but we do encourage you to drink if if you're up to that. So if you have one at home, get ready. Have your French 75 cannon ready, <laughs> ready and waiting. Yep, load it, load it up and get ready because 
one of the things that makes Donald Trump click. <laughs> Take a drink. An especially troubling president is that he really does treat the presidency as his own private power. And it isn't the office of the presidency. It is his own personal authority yep. to use those things. One of the things that I think is the huge difference between governing and ruling in the minds of our own leaders is a concept of respect. When one governs, you have a respect for your own power. You have a respect for your own constituency. If you have a respect for the law, you have a respect for your own office. And I don't see that with this current president. And quite often, I don't see that with our current legislators. Uh, yeah, it isn't just the president. It's the parties who have kind of taken on that attitude, too. Yes, they are, they're proving themselves not open to alternatives. They're not open to compromise, even within constitutional limits. I mean, that that's what somebody who governs should have is they're open to these alternatives. They're open to these compromises as long as they have a strict adherence to constitutional limits. And I don't see that in present day politics. And it's really a shame that we have these legislators and we have these elected officials that seem to think themselves above the law or seem to think that wielding their power should be meant for the good of the party or for the good of themselves. They don't, they view that the people that they represent back them up 100% regardless of how odious their views may be. And that's something that I think we need to fix as American citizens, as, uh, as members of this republic. Interesting point. I really... I really, I'll, I'll drink to that for sure. <laughs> Clink. Cheers. Um, mm. I'll, I'll just say, as far as a respect for, a respect for the institutions and a respect for the constitution and a respect for um, the rules and for the constituency, do you, who's the last, let's just keep it, Big picture. Who's the last presidential candidate, do you think, who had a clear theory of government? Like, were able to articulate why they wanted the job, why exactly they believe that they wanted the job, other than their potential effectiveness to start ticking off the boxes of policy preferences, or because they think that would be really great at it. Like, have we seen any candidates recently who had real a real concept of this is what the government should be doing or should not be doing? It seems to all be going towards, you know, I'm just going to get us the power this time. Are we talking strictly candidates or people who have actually been elected? I mean, um, well, let's let's start with people who've been elected and then we can maybe expand that out to candidates man, being elected. That has to go way back. I mean. Definitely before the 80s. Uh, yeah. I'm tempted to say that the last president that actually felt that his job was to, to serve the republic. I don't know. Man, that might, be, that might go back to the, the, the earliest I want to go is FDR and then, then work my way up. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like a, he had a genuine, uh, a genuine respect for the office and then wanted to do what was best for the republic it might have been controversial at the times and it seems like especially viewing it in hindsight it seems like he almost overstepped his constitutional bounds but i still think that he was a uh, a president that the country needed at the time and the country that or a uh, a president that the country deserved at the time i might go a little well Okay, as far as my question goes, I think that's a pretty good answer. Um, I'm more inclined to say that the last one, really to my mind, someone who really had that sense was probably Eisenhower. Yeah, I could say Eisenhower. I, I, I'm trying to work back. I think back. Dwight Eisenhower was... Yeah, you, I'm trying you're, to, you're really aiming back, yeah, I'm tr back there. I'm trying to, um, to, to work my way up. And Eisenhower, yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you that. Please, uh, because after FDR, so FDR, FDR had the, I mean, World War II, I don't know, 
Well, yeah, let's just say that World War II kind of warped... It, it was the beginning of the warp of our concept of the presidency. And it started to become more powerful in the wake of World War II and into the Cold War. And since then, it has been a steady a steady arc towards what we now call the imperial presidency. Yeah. And I think Dwight Eisenhower, he wasn't perfect, but he, he does get away from that in certain areas. Um, although I will say, you know, this current president's predecessor, President Obama, I just want to get this out. I disagreed with a lot of what he had to bring to the table. I also miss him terribly because what I can say for him that I cannot say about the current president is that I think he had decent intentions and I never had to question his motives for doing what he did do. And I agree, I agree with that 100%. Uh, I don't think that our former president Obama was uh, a terrible person. That he was a terrible American. Not at all. That he even was American to begin with. I mean, let's face it, he is an American. Yeah, he is. Shame shame on the president. Shame on the president for ever making that part of our culture. Shame on it. But yeah, I I may disagree with him on any number of political ventures, but I still think that he, deep down in his heart, had the American people's interests at heart. Like, he wanted uh, he wanted to do what was best for his country. Which, for a president, that's all I can really expect from them. That's what, that mm-hmm. is something that I really want in a president. I may disagree with them on an academic level, but they're somebody I can at least, at the end of the day, share a beer or a cocktail with. Here, here. <laughs> well, hmm. Where do we go from here? <laughs> I suppose, well, we've talked about the moral choice of leaving a party. I mean, if you really want to make your point, you can, you can make that decision to leave a party that you think is going morally off the rails. However, maybe now we can talk about the utility of doing something like that. And I think that the utility of leaving a party... More and more, it it just it doesn't like get game theoretically. It doesn't make sense to leave a political party these days. In the game theory sense, There's, no. Yeah, no, no. You you really are taking yourself out of the system. We we no longer have we. I'm not sure about where you are, but I live in a state that has closed primaries, and I've essentially taken myself out of the system. Right. Th- there is no representation for me as far as the choosing of candidates. And you add on top of that, oh no, go, go on. You've effectively given Please. up your vote. You've given up your own voice within the party. And when, if you were to leave, if I were to leave like I have, um, it it puts the lunatics in charge of the sa- the insane asylum. If I have no voice to overpower the pe- the people that are in charge and the the other voters that continue to remain in the party then what is the ultimate result? You end up with even more insanity at that level where we're willing to accept and actually elect somebody that is brash, has absolutely no concept of right and wrong, and we're willing to accept somebody of that personality as the leader of the party, effectively. Like, we're willing to put that person somebody that is incredibly odious up in front of everybody and say, this is our best. This is our candidate. And I feel like when you leave a party, your voice was suddenly stripped. You had no choice in being like, the people that stayed elected these guys. If I had been there, if I had had that vote, this chaos would not be ensuing. If chaos ensues, you end up, if you have left the, the party, you wind up taking a sense of personal responsibility for it. I almost feel personally responsible for getting somebody like our current president elected. Just from a party standpoint, I feel like it's, 
I'm forever, even if I left the party, if I were to have stayed in, I am now forever associated with the platform of that party, regardless of my personal ideologies. My friendships may suffer because of it. Just to think that maybe if I had stayed, this would never have happened. I mean... That's an interesting point. While you're still in a party, you still hmm. have a primary vote, and you still have a voice within your party. I left my party, and I almost feel personally responsible for the current situation. That's an interesting point. And I'll, I'll add something to that. As far as my own... And I don't want this to become a, ooh, whatever we did to deserve this kind of a podcast. But, you know, b b back when I was a far more active member of the party and when I was younger and less developed as a person, I mean, I, I will just say that I was part of the problem. Like, I, I sort of took on some of the characteristics that we now see in both this president and his enablers. I had a an inconsistent relationship with the truth. I said whatever I needed to say to make a point, and I was rather inflammatory when it was absolutely unnecessary, and I really didn't... I, in the smallest of possible ways, not to give myself any, a, a, any like, gr grandiose influence on the state of the party, in even the smallest of ways in my local community... I was creating the atmosphere for a while, and to that point, I do feel a certain amount of responsibility for both adding into it and then deciding to leave at a point where it was just, it was a decisive time in our party. And I, I, I just, I just said our party. I mean, I still kind of feel that if I ever had to go back, I would... Maybe in a more peaceful time I would go back to the Republican Party, but not at the moment. I cannot go back right now. Like, I feel... I cannot. Given their party platform and the choice of their leaders, I mean, for crying out loud, we had uh, Mitch McConnell come out and say, uh, uh, offer an objection up to a, just because a Democrat came forward with it during the shutdown, saying that... Uh, we want the Democrat was uh, saying that we want to continue to fund the military. We want to make sure our soldiers, our sailors, our Marines, our airmen, we want to make sure that they still get paid while we're shut down. And our and Mitch McConnell objected to that. And I was just like, you cannot possibly like this is my like what was my party is objecting, objecting. To, pay, to paying people that are that are risking their lives going for many, many months without even contacting mainland USA. We're more they're saying that they're more than willing to not pay them than to just to use them as political bargaining chips. And to me that is atrocious. This is this is the party that I left. And I'm glad I left it, but I feel like because I am more conservative-leaning, I'm forever going to be associated with that. And it's the fact that I was a Republican seems to continue to influence the people that I know, uh, my friendships and whatnot. I feel like that stigma is all, is always associated with me. I mean, it, it could be just guilt but I almost feel like if I had stayed, this would, this would never have happened. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to. Yeah, that, that that's a tough, that's a tough one to think about because, once again, I mean, it's not like we're. It's not like Mitt Romney is making this kind of a decision. He's still he's still in the party. It's, it's not like any of the leaders who, who who really do carry that sort of sway are, are really making this decision. I mean. I guess it's nice that we didn't stick around to see ourselves become like a Sean Spicer type <laughs> to be like one of the things that's unique about this president is um, his his ability to corrupt anyone within 50 feet of him, even the most honorable of people uh, uh, like like 
General Kelly, who's his chief of staff now, I mean, even he has had to go in, he's had to wade into the the pathological truthlessness of this presidency um, j- j- just just by the fact that he has to run the, the president's staff. I mean, it's it's kind of tragic to see the influence of what this party has become on otherwise respectable human yeah. beings and, this is one of the and po- respectable citizens. And this is one of the points I want to make about the two-party system. Because our current president and all of his followers are members of the Republican Party, they often feel obliged to support him no matter what happens, which is which really bothers me in the sense that he could do the most deplorable things and whether or not they're proved, it doesn't it doesn't even matter. His followers continue to not only just go along with what he's saying, but to actively defend him. That is one of the things that bothers me about this two party system. And it goes for both sides. The the parties have grown too big and too powerful. We have our we have platforms that are pretty much relegated to the feelings of the time. Uh, they're almost dumbed down just to pander to to the majority, whatever will get them elected. And the two party with the two party system, I feel like they have an ability to silence any form of dissent. I mean, if you are like, if you are saying that our current president through some terrible tweet or whatever he he posted or something that he said or something that he did, if you're saying that if if you're saying that that is okay and defend him, then you're part of the problem. I mean, we and because of this, this entire situation of blindly defending people that we should really denounce we have a polarization within the parties we the right is becoming more right the left is becoming more left and both sides have no option other than to demonize the other side via the media via uh, facebook via twitter and because of this because you have this inability and this refusal to compromise on either side, compromise becomes impossible. And this trickles down from the national political level to the local level. It is terrible that your neighbor who just wants to become mayor uh, is getting into a fight with his other neighbor because he supports the president or does not support the president. And it, we, what we've seen is a trickle-down effect of national politics. And it's setting neighbor against neighbor. It is setting, fa- it is dividing families, brothers and sisters of American families everywhere are now fighting and are at odds because of such a controversial president. And that sort of mentality. The, the president, I will say, did not create this system of demonizing the other side from the, via the media. Okay. He didn't create Good, it, good. But I will say that he exploited it. Yeah, I, I was going to push back. that. I, I mostly agree with that, but I was going to push back on, you had said that... Um, because of this president, people are dividing up, and I kind of, I kind of wonder if that's necessarily the case. I, I don't know if. So we, we've almost abdicated our responsibility as citizens to, to what, we have a responsibility to want the right things for our country, and I think that, in a certain way, we have we were divided before the parties were, like we were a little more. It's not necessarily the the actions of our leaders that that made this a problem, but we started to value different kinds of leaders, and I put those in you know scare quotes there. Leaders. I wonder if that's really like I'm. Yeah, I, I um, as you were saying, like the the president is not the the 
the creator of this problem. He's he's a symptom of it, and I think that we were more well, we were more divided before before he came along. And I think one of the things that changed was we started treating the parties less and less as organizing uh, systems and more as vehicles for ideologies. And that started to chase out that that started to chase out like 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 uh, people like us who have who have moved closer to the center and we found ourselves completely out of the shade of what they call the big um, like the big tent of the Republican or the Democratic parties. Like those tents have started to get started to get smaller and smaller, and those those have been getting smaller and smaller. There's a certain effect that leadership has had on it, but at the same time, we choose them, or do we? That's a good. That, that's going to be a good question to get into. Who who's actually choosing uh, the the representatives of our political parties? Do you have any thoughts on that? Just off the top of your head, I know it's kind of a I I, I blindsided you. Man, with that, my friend seventy five is pretty good, huh? Isn't it? <laughs> well, no, like I, I almost feel my, like my this. larger point there. No, no, no. Go on, go on. I was gonna say this. This almost feels like a topic that we got to continue with another show. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna table that that question, and I think we have plenty to talk about with that. I, I do think that we can we can sort of back that up and say. So I had made the point of you know talking about what were the political parties once in our history. Like nowadays, they're seen and we treat them as vehicles for these broad and very rigid ideologies. But at one point in history, they were something something different, and even that was something that our founders were uncomfortable with. Our founders were very now, skeptical of it, from George Washington yeah. and Thomas Jefferson, especially um, Washington with his uh, with his farewell speech and with Jefferson with, uh, at one point he said something along the lines is, if I had to go to heaven with a party, then I would not go at all. <laughs> we have John Adams to thank, really, for for that well john adams and thomas jefferson i think they both hold so i mean thomas jefferson he he said a lot of nice things but i think he does hold a little bit of responsibility for for bringing into being what yeah like george washington in his farewell address he warned against the the divisive influence of they called factions it wasn't yeah they weren't parties were an idea there but factions was what they would what they would refer to it's, it's really a problem i mean i feel like if he was looking at, if he was here and now, drinking with us, he'd be just like, you know, I'm not the, usually the kind of guy that says "told you so," but I told you so. However, I think that, okay, I think that the founders were a little overly optimistic about that. I can agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How 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 did they think we would ever avoid? the natural grouping off of people into i mean so the constitution the, the bill of rights it 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 guarantees a freedom of association and it guarantees a freedom of speech and it's sort of a natural result of those two to associate into similar political groups for the sake of like i said organizing action organizing money organizing like Organizing your efforts towards accomplishing similar goals, and they were a little naive on that. Well, in that, I mean, why wouldn't we form political parties at that point? Um, and on a broader point, there. So, this is one of the dangers. Uh, so, the Constitution doesn't mention anything about political parties. Not at all. I think that's something worth saying. And I think that there was some of that hopefulness and that some of that optimism that went into, into that, that it was going to remain a very small-R Republican concern for the common good sort of a system. But one thing that—and this is a point that I really want to make, and I, I hope I don't flub it because I'm at the end of my French 75. As am I. Um, Ooh, it's good stuff. So— in the formulation of the Constitution and the formulation of the early American Republic, the founders made a very careful study of what went wrong at the at, at the downfall of the Roman Republic. I mean, we like to compare ourselves to the Roman Empire these days, which we should. But I think that we have a lot, as we should. But also, I think 
if you look, if you dig a little deeper into that, you will see that we have a lot more in common with the downfall of the Republic and the the shifting into the Imperial period. And one of the so Cicero save us all. So the founders, Cicero save well, Cicero saved no one in the end. Um, <laughs> Sad face, but. <laughs> But when they were making a study of what went wrong in the downfall of the of the Roman Republic and those last few generations leading up to Julius Caesar and then um, Mark Antony and Augustus having the civil war and ripping everything up and replacing it with that, was that one of the weaknesses of the Roman system was that, though you may see historians discuss a Roman constitution that defined their political structure. What it really came down to was a set of unwritten norms that for centuries, no one had the guts to violate. It was something, there was a respect for that order. There was a respect for the way things are done. And things really started to fall apart as you started to see um, politicians in the system Deciding that no one has ever tried this, so I will be the one breaking those norms. And because there was no written legal code against which to to push back against these th- th- these people who wanted to break the system, people like people like Sulla, people like Marius, people like Caesar. Um, that's what really went wrong there. And so one of the lessons that they learned from the downfall of the Roman Republic is. If it's that important to you, write it down. If it's that important to you, write it down. We wrote down our constitution for a very good reason, so that it would live in posterity. It would be a an example for future generations, so that we will always know and always understand what is and is not acceptable in governing and in and in how we relate to society. And political parties was one of those things where they never addressed it in. In the rule book, they never really talked about no. it as an assumption in the structure of our government. No, they did. Congress, it doesn't. Not whatsoever. It, no, they didn't. And I think that that's something that we're suffering from is the parties have sort of been able to to build up their own their own structure around themselves. And when we get back to the question of what's the utility of leaving a political party, well, in a lot of states, mine especially. Politics is a closed shop. You have to belong to one of two, essentially, political unions to have any chance of entering into the system. Yeah, that, there are like there's a certain level of rent seeking among the two parties. It's it's an unspoken agreement that they will be the gatekeepers to political power, and that is a distortion that I think if we were to ever have another shot at this or a chance to reform what we already have. That's something we absolutely need to address. Um, That's, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. So this goes back to what I was saying before, that our parties have grown so big and powerful that they have the power to, to destroy any form of dissent from what they, from what they think. That both the Democrats and the Republicans are, are very guilty of this. Um, it's not just the the anti-establishment where yes they may disagree but we're still going to back you it goes even farther deeper than that if you have one person who wants to run for office based upon constitutional principles and personal principles that buck up against what the party wants and what the p- party is willing to even to pay for the party will crush them and not only will they crush them they'll vilify them and they'll vilify them to the point where the media will take hold of it and the media will run with it and so small-time people who just want to have a voice find their voices suddenly silenced suddenly crushed by those larger political parties and the parties have effectively banded together into a two-party system where there can be no true dissent. I cannot go up there and say, I am a Republican, but I disagree with you on just about everything. The person That person would be crushed immediately, and they would never be able to run for public office ever again, locally or on yeah, a national that's, level. 
yeah, that's a sad thing we're seeing. And something that absolutely infuriates me is that in the last year or so, we've seen a number a number of Republicans get up onto C-SPAN and make very high-minded speeches about the distorting influence of this president and that what's wrong with the party and what's wrong with the country. But they are making that point as they have decided to not run for re-election, given any institutional influence that they will have in the future to maybe put a stop to what's going wrong. And like the most recent one was Jeff Flake. And I, I am very unhappy with Jeff Flake at this moment because he's getting all these pats on the back for essentially cutting and running instead of trying to, trying to hold the ground that he currently holds. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about is we're living in an unreal time and a time where just about anything, I think just about anything is possible. And a lot of those assumptions are falling apart. We just saw, we just saw a Democrat get elected in Alabama for crying out loud, which is unheard. Now of. that was a, Absolutely unheard of. And that was a rejection of a candidate. Imagine if someone like Jeff Flake or someone, I'm, I'm blanking on other names, uh, but imagine if one of them decided to make that kind of a stand and then stay and attempt re-election. I wonder what an affirmative vote for, 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 a, for a value set instead of against a value set like we saw with Roy Moore. I wonder how that would actually turn out. There's a there's a pessimism and a defeatism that has taken hold in the minds of Republicans. What we need to figure and what we need to figure out is we need to stop figuring out what we are against and instead we need to figure out as a nation what we are for. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And in the meantime, we're going to be remain we're going to remain trapped between the two parties in a game of, um, oh, the French 75 just <laughs> took away the memory of monkey in the middle. We, we the centrists, we the new center will be the monkey in the middle between these two sets of extremists. And who knows when we're going to see another government shut down. And, I mean, you made the point that military service people are now political pawns. We're all political pawns now. All of us. The well-being of anyone who relies on a gov- on a federal program is really held hostage generally when they decide to throw a th- when they decide to throw a conniption fit for essentially the sole purpose of trying to make a public case of blame for the other side. And it that's it, a tragedy. It's a shame. It is an absolute shame. That it is. Our own military is now their political pawns. It is. Which they have no power over. Well, yeah. I I tremble for my country sometimes, but... But the Republic still stands. The Republic still stands for now. We'll see how long it stays that way. Well, well, JT, we've certainly carved out quite a large topic for ourselves, and I think we've only really taught... Oh, boy. There's that sound again. Uh, oh, well. Sound. Well, I think if anybody who listened to episode one recalls, this is this is our signal from the Illuminati to wrap it up. And uh, they've, they've commissioned a speech from one of us this time, and we'll see how that goes. But um, Tonight's moment of clarity. JT? Tonight's moment of clarity. Tonight's moment of clarity. Mr. Dan Caves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was trapped in a small window of this room while I had to record it. But uh, once I got around the fourth take, I think they, yeah, they they unlocked the door and I was free to go. But um, <laughs> anyway, and it's completely dry, too. It was it was so hard to deal with. Well, JT, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good right now. <laughs> yeah. Um well, everybody, I hope that you've all enjoyed your French 75s. And uh, before we move on to the moment of clarity, I would like to just remind you that if you have any comments, any questions, any cocktail recommendations, love, any love, complaints. Love mail, hate mail, existential crises, sultry love net- letters, and anything else, please email we us. We want to hear it all. 
please email us at cocktailpartycongress at gmail.com. And I would also like to add that we are now officially available on the iTunes Store and on Google Play. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help spread the word about it, go ahead and go onto either one of those. We'll try to get onto the other directories as soon as possible, but those are the big ones. And give us a, I hope, five-star review. Please give us, yeah. please give us stars. Give us a, give us I a, like stars. Give us a good, give us a good review. Give us, give us a laurel and a hearty handshake. At least a few stars, which implies more than two, so three or more, and then um, maybe write a little blurb about what you like about the podcast, and maybe spread the word. That'll help us get us get us noticed on the directories. So that would be um, that'd be a wonderful of, thing for you to do. We are the faces do. of continuous improvement. Uh, it, I I hope so, and we're still finding our feet here. I hope that you're enjoying. You're enjoying our musings and our drunk meanderings through some pretty hefty topics. Uh, and um, I guess the last thing I'll say is that the Cocktail Party Congress was created, presented, and produced by myself, Dan Caves, and and me, Mr. J.T. Andrews over there. And <laughs> I, I, I don't have a webcam, so I was gesturing for some reason, assuming that you would you would get the cue. You but, rube. Um, we are the creators and producers of this podcast. However, we did not compose the intro music. The introductory music, in case you didn't check the show notes for episode one, is Darksea Land by Kevin McLeod. And uh, you can find that track and more royalty-free music at his website, www.incompetech.com. That is I-N-incompetech. <laughs> I-N-C-O-M-T. Shut up, JT. Spelling is difficult. I n c o i n c o m p e t e c h dot com incompetech.com. Kevin, we're so sorry about this plug. This was so ad lib. We're idiots. At the end of the show. At we're the end of the worthy. show of all times. But I just, I just want to say one more time. Thank you so much for talking to me, JT. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I mean, really, it's a good reason to uh, have a couple of cocktails. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think so, too. Well, ladies and gentlemen, fellow listeners, good night and good luck. Ah, uh, Yeah, we're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers and enjoy the moment of clarity. I am a millennial, and as podcast listeners, I am sure that many of you are as well. Quite annoyingly, baby boomers have spent dozens of column inches to generalize about us with a certain relish. And it isn't anything unique, nor do I begrudge them of this. Older generations tend to give their offspring hell just before those offspring inevitably supplant them. It's natural. The details are modern, but the sentiment is ancient. Go back to the Greeks and the Romans, and you will find gripes of the same tone as baby boomers write about us today. Sure, they may have had more to say about loose togas than skinny jeans, gallic scruff rather than black plastic eyeglass frames, and the drinking of undiluted wine rather than the consumption of avocado toast, but century after century, the parting generation has always had criticisms to level at their replacements. And ultimately, most of those criticisms fade with the generation that voiced them. One criticism sticks in my mind, though, and I think it is a serious one. It's a deficiency that I truly regret when I think about it, and I hope that you do, too. Think of it this way. Our parents grew up in an unbelievable time. The 1960s were a decade of today. Unthinkable upheaval. There were no shortage of problems, just as we see today, but there were also no shortage of leaders. No shortage of would-be heroes who, in the face of overwhelming uncertainty and an often hostile government, took up flags of social change from east to west, from north to south, and turned to their peers to declare, follow me. My generation appears to have no leaders, 
only causes. In a cause, no one has to do anything in particular. They only have to join the choir of voices calling for something to be done. There are no dragon slayers, only anti-dragon activists. It takes no strength to look at the world and opine the damage wrought by a dragon. Oh, did you see what the dragon did today? What it incinerated, what it devoured, what it plundered. Oh, we must stop this dragon. We must start a grassroots anti-dragon movement and maybe, just maybe, our collective cries will slay it. But I say, why campaign against the proliferation of dragons when you can take on the responsibility of wielding the sword? We have a tendency to make politics a game of how much we can weaken our enemies for their defeat. Say whatever needs to be said to render them toxic, novel, or ridiculous. This sometimes requires you to compromise the truth, if your opponent is not sufficiently evil on their own merits. I understand it. We all love a weak enemy. You do not need to bring much to the table to enact their downfall. They only need to be sufficiently dangerous so that no one will engage with them. You don't have to be worth anything. You only have to be less worthless than your enemy. Any fool can build a straw man and proudly raise a torch to set it alight. Any person can become a miniature demagogue, making all of the problems of the world the responsibility of them, whoever they are. And if we just remove them from power and break down the institutions that they built, and then finally keep them from the table, then maybe, just maybe, we can have our perfect society. Something is missing, though, to me. In the long term, a focus on weakening your enemies will only leave you weak. To make this the focus of social change is ultimately destructive. Increasing the weakness of your enemies only degrades the strength you need to enact real change. But how shall we change the world? Should we spend our energy rendering it harmless, or should we instead make ourselves braver? Harmlessness is no virtue. The harmless can never defeat the harmful. Besides, the world is composed of other people than you. Individuals, combative and resistant to change. And how would you go about changing them? Reach into their minds and replace their ideas for them? Crush the behaviors you have judged to be less than ideal in your perfect world? Good luck, I say, but expect to become a tyrant, even if the most well-intentioned of tyrants, if you choose this path. I do not believe that you can change the world by changing other people. To improve the world, you must begin by improving yourself. A leader is not the perfect person, but rather the imperfect person who manages their flaws best. A leader is a person who sets their house well enough in order to leave it behind and venture into the forest. The weakness of the dragon you slay will mean nothing compared to the strength with which you wield your sword. And I use the word strength not in the crude sense of violent domination, but in the sense of real inner strength. The kind of strength that comes with competence in your life. The kind of strength that helps you stand up in the face of tragedy and malevolence and be useful to your fellows. The kind of strength that drives you into the chaos of the world to face it and perhaps bring some order into being. The kind of strength that makes you brave rather than safe. So perhaps the more heroic act is not in wielding the sword, but in your choosing to venture into the forest in the first place and to face the mystery and the dangers therein. Dragons be damned. But you do have a sword. In that, you have a mind and a society still free enough to let you use it. You need only decide for yourself that the even the strongest dragon is within your power to slay. A nation of victims may be unimpeachable, but a republic of heroes is undefeatable. Heroic strength is not in the stiffness of your resolve, but in your flexibility in the face of changing realities. A sword must bend with the blows it gives and receives, or else it will break. Your mind is the same. As the Czech Soviet dissident Václav Havel once said, Seek those who seek the truth, 
and avoid those who have found it. Ideologues once more hold an immense sway in our current climate, but we must not validate them. We must not follow them. Their false certainty is not an illuminating beacon, but darkness visible. And when they preach the gospel of easy answers and unwavering minds, do not forget the words that Milton wrote for Lucifer in Paradise Lost. Thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. Not to be changed by place or time. Tyrants, great and small, will often ask you, first and foremost, for your conformity. They will insist that you never question the questionable. Your willingness to go along shall be the measure of your weakness. Your resistance to their demands shall be the measure of your strength. Take responsibility for your relationship with the truth. Even if you find it hard to speak the truth outright, you can at least stop speaking knowing, tactical untruths. Reason is only a tool, and its virtue comes from how it serves a higher ideal. Demagogues are magnetic, both to thoughtless masses and to other demagogues. A right-wing demagogue may only inspire a left-wing demagogue who feels that the only way to defeat is to match, and they will seek to organize the lost and the fearful into a seething, resentful mass to replace rather than defeat, only swapping one dragon for another. We must reject this while we still can. The health of our democracy is at stake, and you can immunize it by reclaiming yourself. Reclaim your relationship with reality and engage with that reality truthfully. Develop yourself as an individual, and people may follow your example. Start small if you have to. As Dr. Jordan Peterson would say, clean your room. But start. You, yes, you, are the one who can heroically bring order out of the chaos that surrounds us. Go into the forest, trust in your sword, face the horrors that await you. And if enough of us do that together, then maybe, just maybe, we all can say now and forevermore that the Republic still stands. <laughs>